Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Wow! I am so very excited to be here and I've got an extraordinary guest and I'm just trying to really understand how extraordinary he is because there are no words. So as we get ready to go live simulcasting on Facebook, I am so delighted to introduce the one and only Gene Bauer of Farm Sanctuary, known as the conscience of the food movement. Thank you for joining us, Gene. Uh, I want to get straight to it. What's happening with sanctuaries today, particularly Farm Sanctuary, during this crisis? Well, you know, at Farm Sanctuary, we're doing everything necessary to protect the animals, to protect the safety of our workers and people who are interested in visiting. So we've pretty much shut down our visitor programs at the moment. We're hoping that before too long, we'll be able to reopen and bring visitors back and also bring more volunteers back and open the sanctuaries up so people have an opportunity to interact with animals in a positive way. But during the the coronavirus pandemic, we're just being very safe for people and animals at the sanctuaries. But I mean, what's the impact? Like we know vegan restaurants are struggling. In fact, right now, Jane Unchained is working with Support and Feed. We just launched a new show on Amazon Prime um, showcasing Maggie Baird, who's Billie Eilish's mother, who's um, figuring out with this incredible campaign, Support and Feed, uh, how to get people to donate to vegan restaurants. They make food. And then the food is delivered to people in need, people who are hungry during this pandemic. Is there anything like that going on with sanctuaries at all? Because, um, you know, you've got animals to feed. You've got a lot of gland to keep up. How are you handling all that? Well, I mean, we're very fortunate to have such strong supporters. But, you know, certainly we are seeing some drop-offs in terms of financial support. And I think other sanctuaries are as well. And, you know, with the situation and our inability to interact more in person and physically, there's a lot going on now online. Uh, You've maybe seen the Sweet Farm folks have done something called um, the Goat to Meeting, where they're creating opportunities for people to bring a goat or other animal from a farm sanctuary into business meetings. So that's an innovative way that sanctuaries are reaching out and connecting with people during the pandemic when we cannot uh, connect in person or physically to be able to connect more virtually and virally. And so that's happening. Uh, I think that our food system and the, the supply chain issues that we're observing with slaughterhouses, for example, and other industrial production methods create opportunities for more localized plant-based businesses, uh, many who are suffering, but I would encourage people, and I'm certainly doing this, to try to support local vegan businesses, to order online, and to really exercise our ability to vote with our dollars, to support vegan businesses, which frankly is something we should be doing all the time anyway. But I think during the pandemic now, it's especially important 
to support local vegan businesses, to support local nonprofits, uh, any organization that's helping to make plant foods more widely accessible to consumers is also a very good thing. Um, but I'm hoping that this pandemic creates an opportunity for a reset, for us to reevaluate our socioeconomic systems, especially around food, uh, to recognize that our food system is causing enormous harm to animals and also to workers who are now getting sick in these slaughterhouses. Uh, our food system is also bad for consumers who are eating too many animal foods and as a result have higher risk of coronavirus and other diseases because their immune systems are compromised. So this, I think, creates an opportunity for us to really critically evaluate what we have been doing in food and agriculture and to shift things away from industrialized animal production towards a community-oriented plant-based food system where, for instance, farmers markets or community-supported agriculture programs or grow-your-own operations. You know, Victory Gardens during World War II fed 40% of the produce that our country needed. Uh, and I think there's this resurgence now of gardening, which I think is very positive. Um, so I think, you know, although this is a very disruptive time, I'm hopeful that it will create new ways of living on the planet that are more sustainable, less wasteful, more humane, more healthy, uh, more compassionate. And um, I think we have this opportunity now to think through now how do we live and how do we want to live and, and, and to make some really important changes. Well, from your mouth to God's ear, uh, you wrote this incredible article in The Guardian, which got a lot of attention, an op-ed piece that says, it's time to dismantle factory farms and get used to eating less meat. We should envision a more resilient and sustainable food system, one that doesn't commodify sentient life. Um, certainly, the vegans watching, we're already, like, for example, Jane Unchained is involved with uh, a the meat boycott. There's an actual hashtag boycott meat campaign. Uh, by the way, we'd love you to join it. Um, I stumbled upon um, Joe Enriquez Henry, who is in Iowa and who is uh, involved with the Iowa affiliate of LULAC. And uh, we ended up uh, with a bunch of activists and environmentalists and workers' rights advocates doing a news conference and taking his meatless may campaign into a national boycott meat uh, movement and in fact we're having our first roundtable post the news conference today uh on jane unchained and we'd love you to join uh Sounds because, great. yeah it's an opportunity to form a coalition uh these slaughterhouses have become slaughterhouses for people too yes can you address that that if if people often say as you know gene um, even though you are the conscience of the food movement, sometimes we're condescended to and say, oh, it's, it's so nice you care about animals. I care about people. Well, now with at least 99 slaughterhouse workers dead from COVID-19 and slaughterhouses being the hotspots, one of the nation's hotspots and the world's hotspots, uh, along with nursing homes and prisons, now, when you're eating animals, you are quite possibly co-signing the death of a worker. Very good point. I mean, animal agriculture, factory farming, and slaughterhouses represent structures and systems of violence, abuse, and oppression of animals, but also of people. And with the coronavirus and slaughterhouses becoming hotspots, 
they have, in many cases, rightfully closed down because people are getting sick. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the president's administration uh, signed an order requiring these slaughterhouses to stay open, forcing workers to put themselves at risk, and also creating a situation where the slaughterhouses and those corporations will not be properly liable for causing harm to these workers. And so this is an industry that really reflects a broader system of oppression. And I'm hopeful that given the focus on what is happening, uh, that more and more people will recognize that when they buy meat and other animal products, they are complicit in supporting this system that causes so much harm, not only to animals, but also to workers, also to people who live near factory farms. And in many cases, people who live near factory farms or slaughterhouses or who work in these places uh, don't have a lot of economic or political power. And so the industry is able to exploit and abuse them. And this has been happening for decades. You know, in North Carolina, for example, uh, there have been a number of attempts by neighbors to prevent pig factories from polluting the neighborhoods and, and actually making neighbors sick but they've been unable to. And so, you know, environmental racism is a real issue. Food apartheid is a real issue. People who work in slaughterhouses also tend to be people of color. And so there's a lot of um, broad areas of concern here that are now also, I think, starting to become a bigger focus. We're recognizing how there are structural forms of racism in our country, and these are very much tied to slaughterhouses and to our food system. So, uh, that's another thing that's happening now that hopefully we can start actually seeing not just some symbolic changes, but some real structural changes. Well, you just said a phrase that I've never heard before, food apartheid. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Well, basically, in certain parts of the country, you know, inner cities, for example, there is a lack of access to healthy food. And you have liquor stores, you have candy and junk that people have access to and are consuming and getting sick. Um, so people have often referred to these as food deserts, places where there's not access to good food. But Karen Washington, an African-American food justice activist based in New York, uh, is now encouraging people to use the word food apartheid because these are systems and structures that are not just by happenstance, they're actually created, they're socioeconomic creations that need to be called out, challenged, and ultimately changed. So food apartheid is uh, something that exists in this country, just as other forms of structural racism that need to be addressed, and, and, and we need to make changes. Not only symbolic, it's great to see statues coming down, it's great to see flags and other symbols being addressed, but ultimately we need new systems, new structures that will enable people to live well and enable everybody to live well and fundamentally shift away from an economic system based on exploitation and extraction, you know, extracting the lives of animals, extracting the labor of workers uh, and causing people and animals to suffer to one of mutuality where workers and animals and people all live together in mutually beneficial ways. And this extractive system is also very harmful to the earth. You know, we're extracting resources. We could feed far more people with less land and less resources through plant-based agriculture. So animal agriculture is also an inherently extractive, exploitive system. So um, I'm hopeful that, you know, with the growing focus and awareness on the various injustices, including racism, 
there can be a reimagining of what kind of a food system we want. And a lot of this is actually not new. You know, for example, near Mexico City, you know, that, you know, before the co colonial uh, times was an urban area where millions of people were eating on a community-oriented plant-based food system. And some of that is now starting to re-emerge. And you have opportunities now to provide access to land and access to resources that people in inner cities as well as in suburban and rural areas can use to become empowered to grow their own food. So I think, you know, we're at a time now where very few people are in food production and factory farms are mass production systems, but they are very um, fragile in that, you know, when you have disruptions, they can collapse as we've seen. So I think we need a more resilient system where you have a diverse community oriented plant-based system. Uh, and you also have more connections between food growers and consumers. You have connections between neighbors, you know, for example, somebody might have, an apple tree and somebody else might have a pear tree and you know one person's gonna have too many apples one's gonna have too many pears so they swap and it's a it's a win-win so there are ways to create mutually beneficial uh, food networks instead of this extractive system we currently have yeah and now getting back to what's happening in the slaughterhouses because I just read today that uh, some uh, investment group had downgraded uh, Beyond Meat, which of course is the most successful initial public offering since the 2008 financial crisis when Beyond Meat went public. And throughout the time, even if it was go as it was going way, way up, they were always saying, um, this is not something you should buy because the system is inherently prejudiced against um, especially advertiser-based media, for example, the cable shows that cover business they're, they're prejudiced against a, a, a vegan product because look at their advertisers, primarily meat, dairy, and pharmaceuticals. And so just today, I read this article say, we're downgrading Beyond Meat because the meat industry is coming back post-COVID. Now, I always look at these things skeptically because it's a lot of it's wishful thinking. And a lot of it is uh, just telegraphing what they want to have happen. Even as the stock was skyrocketing, they were uh, they were not suggesting that it be that it be bought. And so um, the interesting thing is that now talking to those workers, advocates who are on the front lines in places like Iowa, it's not going away. The COVID-19 crisis is not going away. As of June 24th, 99 slaughterhouse workers at least reported dead from COVID-19, the number is likely much higher. Then you have their families and you have the communities. And uh, as Dr. Neil Barnard, who um, it was part of the news conference and is part of the coalition with Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine pointed out, the CDC has a raft of suggestions. Oh, you need to maintain social distance in the slaughterhouse. And he said, good luck with that. These are cramped places where you're on an assembly line. It's literally impossible to social distance. And now you have them with some PPE, but it's so uh, onerous on them. And uh, they even use the example of a woman who had glasses and one of these uh, plastic shields that they're sweating onto the food, which means that with the slaughterhouses riddled with COVID-19, 
The, they could be contaminating the food that's being shipped out. Are they testing the food? I, what I'm trying to say is there's it's chaos. There's all of this stuff happening. And yet, if you look at the industry and the administration, they're saying, you know, nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Meanwhile, I opened the New York Times this morning. The number of cases in the United States are skyrocketing. Yes. Yes. No, I think these slaughterhouses have inherent problems. You know, when you crowd people in to kill animals as fast as possible, and that's another thing that's been happening, is the slaughterhouse line speeds have been increasing. They have been given waivers to kill animals as fast as they want. So that's only going to exacerbate the problem with disease spreading, with workers working faster and more stressful, difficult circumstances, uh, which is going to only exacerbate the potential spread of coronavirus. So, um, no, I think you're right. There's this bias in agriculture uh, and this belief system people have that meat is somehow something we should have. And I think that's why you have certain stories that are being put out there. But part of it, I believe, also has to do with trying to convince consumers (laughs) that eating meat is a good thing. And for many years, we have kind of had this notion that eating meat provides strength and protein and all these sorts of things. But, you know, when you step back and really think about it, our connection to and desire for eating meat is very much, I think, linked to our desire for power, which I think is a problem. You know, it's been said that power corrupts, and that's absolutely the case. And in the case of the meat industry, you have animals who are exploited, you have workers who are exploited, and then you have consumers, you know, who somehow think that eating meat is is a valuable thing. And if you look at human history, whenever a society has become wealthier and more powerful, they've tended to want more meat. And countries like the US, which have historically been very powerful, tend to eat a lot of meat. So meat and power tend to go together. And it's been assumed that that's a good thing, but I think we need to recast that and reframe that and reshape that and ask ourselves, you know, what is good about that? And and what does power do to us as human beings. And, you know, scientists have looked at this and when people have power over others, um, Mm -hmm. they become sadistic, they become sadistic and lose our empathy. I mean, empathy is a critically important part of humanity. And when we have power over somebody else, now, whether it's other animals or whether it's other people, there's a tendency to um, denigrate victims of abuse. And, you know, we see this in so many ways, but this is a big part of the whole meat industry, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you have Americans, pretty much Americans, uh, certainly middle class and upper class Americans are not uh, going in and killing uh, animals in slaughterhouses. There's no slaughterhouses on Park Avenue in Beverly Hills. And so you have people of a certain income level describing themselves as animal lovers while they're co-signing uh, uh, the murder of of animals and now people as people are dying to kill the animals and yet they're completely distanced from it like oh i'm an animal lover ahimsa i do yoga i'm peaceful and yet they are paying for the killing of these animals and now you add on the fact that the people killing the animals are dying themselves so yes. there's a huge disconnect. We've got a caller. Let's go quickly to a caller, then we'll take a break. Uh, Farad, I think I might be uh, pronouncing that wrong, but Farad, what is your question or thought? Hi, thank you very much for this uh, amazing interview. Uh, 
I, I wanted to ask a question, uh, kind of following up on this theme of, uh, you know, a lot of slaughterhouse workers getting sick and dying from uh, the pandemic. Uh, uh, we know that uh, the the slaughterhouses are disproportionately uh, hire workers that come from disadvantaged ba- backgrounds. You know, whether they're uh, uh, undocumented immigrants, whether they're you know, African-Americans in rural areas who don't have any job opportunities. So uh, what do you, what do you uh, think is a way that we as uh, vegans uh, can approach um, solidarity with um, these disadvantaged communities um, in a way that is intersectional and, and that helps, you know, save the lives of these uh Workers who who you know uh, are are suffering precisely because of consumers' demand for meat and the, uh, government and corporations' insistence that they work even during a pandemic. Yes, uh, absolutely. They described the meat packers as essential workers, which of course they're not. I mean, millions of people live without meat and are statistically healthier than those who eat animals. Uh, You want to answer that, Gene? Yeah, I would say that awareness about vegan living and anti-oppression consumer habits have been in the black community for decades. Dick Gregory, the comedian activist, was a vegan and also a civil rights activist. Angela Davis, who was a member of the Black Panthers. And, you know, I grew up with certain impressions of the Black Panthers that, that I now realize were inaccurate. And, you know, the more I learn about Angela Davis, the more impressed I am. And she's actually a vegan, too. So there's a robust vegan community uh, uh, among black people and other people uh, that are non-white vegan advocates. So I think it's important for us to recognize that and to support uh, entrepreneurs, especially those from from African-American communities and communities that have historically not had the same sort of privilege as white activists like we have had. Yeah, and in fact, a study showed that African-Americans are transitioning to veganism at a higher rate than any other demographic. Uh, And you have uh, African-American vegan stars like Tabitha Brown, who did a video um, that got 12,000 views. It went totally viral, and she made carrot bacon, and it's just an adorable video. I totally understand why it went viral, because you just can't stop yourself from watching it. We're going to take a short break on Voice America Radio. We're going to stay live on... Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Are you ready for provocative discussions with some of today's most powerful movers and shakers? Tune in to The Art of Significance featuring Dan Clark, the modern day Napoleon Hill, who interviews the wealthiest, most successful celebrities and business leaders on the planet who are using their influence to change the world. From authors to entertainers, sports figures, educators to military leaders, Dan covers multiple topics. Tune in every Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 
Tune in to the Tony D'Urso Show with key influencers for entertaining and thought-provoking weekly discussions with some of the top stars in their fields. From business, sports, and science to entertainment, music, and literature, Tony's guests share their success and give their wisdom. If you're looking to manifest your vision and see how others have done so, be sure to listen to the Tony D'Urso Show every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencer channel the voice america talk radio network is on instagram make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows live events and around the network we want to see what you have to share as well check us out on instagram at voice america talk radio we don't follow we lead join us the voice america influencers channel You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email in to News at gmail.com. Now back to the show. And what would a show on Jane Unchained be without our mascot, Little Rico, our rescue from All Sato's Rescue in Puerto Rico. And if I don't pick him up, he calls his agent, and it gets very ugly very quickly. Um, so I, I know we've got another caller on hold, but I do want to say, I was talking about how I was, I was watching this history show about how the plague, which hit the Middle Ages in the 14th century, completely changed society. Mm-hmm. 100%. Nothing was the same afterwards. And I'm watching this last night, and I'm going, oh, my God, that's happening to us. Nothing's going to be the same. I mean, it's a very disruptive time, very disruptive, which creates opportunities. And so we just need to be sure to be very engaged and mindful and then create the solutions and push the solutions, you know, which have to do with, I think, providing land to a broader variety of people, small holdings, you know, and, you know, when the government is doing these huge bailouts, like with all this COVID money, for example, instead of that money going to a few really big corporations, wouldn't it make sense for it to go to a, a lot more smaller businesses and, and individuals, you know, and really empower people from the bottom up? I think, you know, the plague, as you were describing, you know, when that occurred, you had the serfs or the peasants who now had been decimated their population. So there were fewer of them, which meant that there was such a strong demand for labor that the nobility had to actually treat the workers better. And I think maybe we're at a time now where we're recognizing the value of essential work. We're recognizing the value of farm labor, which has traditionally been very much exploited. And I think we need to move away from this mass production system where people and animals are seen as commodities. They're pushed very hard. They're in some ways expendable. If they get sick, they're they're no longer used, right? So creating a system that is healthy for workers, uh, producing healthy food, so quality food as opposed to quantity food, more local food, and different systems where you have community-oriented, diverse farms in various communities instead of these industrial um, hotspots, which we currently have. So I think a whole structural shift in the food industry towards plants as well as smaller. We've got some callers who've been very patient. Paige, your question or thought? Paige. Well, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Dean Bauer, you're one of my heroes personally, and 
On June 9th, you wrote a beautiful post from being at a Black Lives Matter protest uh, demonstration. And you write at the end, we need to do better. And I hear some of the solutions. And I would just like to hear if you have any more for people like me who are active out here in Los Angeles. How can we do better? How can we dismantle systematic injustice and violence and inequality as vegans? How can we do this? Please. I'm partnering with you. Yeah, no, I think it's really important just to become aware of the diverse vegan community and to do more to support folks who we haven't supported, frankly. You know, there's a very robust black vegan community. There's like Compton Vegan, I think, for example. And there's just get to know different vegan businesses, especially those who are non-white, and support them and um, tell other people about them and, you know, you know, have food events and buy a lot of food for friends, neighbors, and family. So I think we need to continue doing what we have been doing in terms of voting with our dollars. But I think we have opportunities now to be more mindful and recognize that there are communities beyond the privileged white vegan community that need, uh, need us to be more aware and to be more supportive. In fact, I was talking to somebody yesterday who said, actually, our vegan animal rights movement is very diverse. It's just that the people who end up doing the speaking a lot of times are not as diverse as the movement itself. So it's like the restaurants that are profiled, the organizations that are profiled, and that there has to be more diversity in that. It's, it's a PR issue to a certain extent. And so um, I, I think it's wonderful that Tabitha Brown, for example, is picked up by Ellen. Now she's got some kind of show with Ellen. Uh, you know, that's terrific. Okay, uh, Kim is on hold. Kim, your question or thought? Kim? Oh, Kim! You know what happens when you don't pick up. Oh, we lost Kim. Okay, well, I, I just wanna, I wanna ask you about the whole issue of disruption because there are moments where I'm looking at this crisis which is truly, I was in the news business for 38 years. This is the strangest time, I think, ever. And we've been through a lot, you know, earthquakes, um, ginormous trials, uh, social unrest in the past, uh, 9-11. But this is just an ongoing surreal experience. And every day we wake up and it's like, what's going to happen? Um And so when we talk about disruption in the food system, I hear what you're saying about how people are now getting back to the earth, the victory gardens, there's vertical farming. We've profiled some vertical farmers. In fact, I was going to do it here and um, I'm getting ready because I'm a little scared. You know, I'm a city girl. I was born and raised in midtown Manhattan. So it's very scary for me, but I think I'm going to take the leap and have at least one potted plant with the vertical farming. And, uh, but, but on a larger scale, uh, with the slaughterhouses being riddled with COVID-19, some of them closing, and then the farmers having to quote unquote depopulate their animals, which the news media falsely describes as euthanasia. There was some video that uh, direct action everywhere provided that is some of the most horrific footage I have ever seen in my entire life of these animals being slowly asphyxiated and then shot, any of them who survive. I mean, this is something out of a slasher movie. It's something out of a horror movie that would make any horror movie you've ever seen look like a tea party. 
So now farmers are coming to terms with what they have to do. Isn't this an opportunity for us to go to farmers and ranchers who are also being exploited, who are also being factory farmed, who are stuck in onerous loans, who are basically making pennies uh, per animal and being subjected to all sorts of diseases, as well as the depression and the stress. Isn't this the time to say, let's lead you out of this nightmare? Absolutely. I think farmers in many ways also are sort of victims of this system. They end up on a treadmill, they end up in debt, and they don't think that there are ways out. And unfortunately, this animal agriculture system, in addition to being exploitive of animals and workers, is also using enormous government resources and money to survive. And in the case of the dairy industry, for example, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that showed that over 70% of dairy industry income came from government programs. So that is inherently inefficient, inherently unsustainable. And those government dollars tend to go to the big operators, not to the small farmers. Um, so you, you have small dairy farms who are struggling, who are going out of business, who are still getting government money to barely stay afloat, but most of them ultimately will likely shut down. And, and then be bought up by a bigger dairy operation. So what I think needs to happen with those government programs is instead of giving these animal farmers to maintain a very stressful, difficult lifestyle where they're on the edge of going out of business, to actually use some of those resources to help farmers learn new trades and create new opportunities. And there's enormous potential. I mean, if you think about our food system, you know, we, we now have, like, in terms of plant foods, there's I mean, apples, oranges, bananas, some pretty typical fruits. But there are so many other kinds of fruits, like, you know, goji berries or cherimoyas and, 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 and you know, papayas and mangoes that, that can be part of the process that farmers now expand into. And in addition to doing a variety of different kinds of plant foods, and you know, there's amaranth, quinoa, all these types of uh, plant-based grains as well. There's also the opportunity for value-added products. And farm, farmers also, in addition to produce and, and food, have an opportunity to generate income through experiences, you know, farm-to-table events, working with chefs, uh, creating positive experiences with, you know, pick your own operation. So in the agriculture space, there's enormous opportunity in ecotourism, as well as in food production and uh, and 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 value added, uh, you know, dining experiences. So this is where I think uh, there's enormous potential. And in addition to you know just growing the food, and when you're just growing the food on a factory farm, whether it's animal agriculture or plant based, that work is not pleasant. I mean, you know, like people who are picking produce in Arizona, for example, or you know, in the Southwest where it's you know, it's, it's pretty difficult labor. Uh, to create a situation where they're producing, you know, more quality food and it's less less of a, a treadmill. So that's the kind of shift I think we need to see. Absolutely. Okay, Kim's back. Your question or thought, Kim? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was just wondering about the animals at the sanctuaries during these trying times. Are um, they getting any visitors or volunteers? How can we interact with the animals? Aren't they missing all their interaction? 
Well, you know, at Farm Sanctuary and at other sanctuaries, we have our caregivers who spend most of the time with the animals on a regular basis, and, and that's still the case now. Uh, we do not have the visitors like we normally would have, um, so that is a shift. But, you know, some of the animals, I think, probably miss people. Some of the other animals probably don't really mind <laughs> if people aren't coming. So I think, you know, each individual <laughs> kind of a different response to the current <laughs> scenario, right? You're like, whoo, I can let my hair down. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's so interesting uh, to think about how rapid social change can occur because you know, just what you were saying about this is an opportunity, this is a moment in time. I happen to be looking at some video and somebody had done a special process on some of the very earliest films that were ever recorded where it was just like choppy, you know, it would jump because it was just like a bunch of cards put together. And they put a process where it looked like it was today. It's freaky. It's like 1890 something or other. And you're looking at video. It looks like video. But what first struck me was it's all horse-drawn carriages in a big city, horse-drawn carriages. And then what came along? The electric car. Now, there's still horse abuse, unfortunately, at racetracks and by the Bureau of Land Management. But you know, all those horses aren't, we, we, aside from the Central Park and the, the big city occasional, the vast majority of horses who were being tortured in carriage horse industry, it was eliminated because of a new technology that came along. So do you see that parallel here, Gene? Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, the plant-based meats now that are replacing the animal meats, and this is like even in fast food restaurants. So that is absolutely happening. Beyond Meat, for example, you know, for, for years has had this theory, and I completely subscribe to it, that growing plant protein is just more efficient than raising animals for food. So ultimately, once Beyond Meat and companies like that start scaling up, they'll be in a position to produce a product, a, a burger, for example, with less resources. So it'll be less expensive, and it'll be essentially the same product. And then you okay. also... Yeah, we're taking a very short break. I know you can't stay for the entire hour, but uh, we're gonna take a short break on Voice Park Radio. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America in Influencers Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We get Guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. 
We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to Jane Unchained. To reach the show today, call in to 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You may also send an email in to janeunchainednews at gmail.com. Now back to the show. All right. Now, Jane, I had a question for you, but I know the callers drop off. So we've got Paula on hold. Why don't you ask your question, Paula? Yes. Hi there. Um, hi, Jean. Hi, um, Jane. Okay. Um, my question is, when my thought is, like, I- I'm very disturbed when I listen to, like, Rachel Maddow or any other news channel, the complete omission of anything you're talking about. Why is that, like, somebody like Rachel Maddow, Okay, there's a delay. Um, yeah, I mean, and and I and I asked you this once, Jane, and because uh, I was wondering why people like Eugene or Dr. Greg or Dr. Clapper, you're you're on YouTube a lot. You're occasionally, Jean, I know you're on TV sometimes, but why aren't the the prominent vegan spokespeople able to get on TV and read the Riot Act to the public? Um, is it a matter of having to be invited on these plays, on these yes. shows? Or, yes, or you can, have to be invited. Your, uh, okay. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Paula. Yes, you have to be invited. And, uh, I can answer that question a little bit uh, because I was in the media for 38 years in local news, in syndicated television, and national cable television. And you can't even call them. They can only call you. And all you need to do is look at the advertisers. Literally. With the exception of an occasional insurance commercial, it's all meat, dairy, pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals are really part of the meat, dairy industry because you wouldn't need all those pharmaceuticals if people were eating a plant-based diet. So, you know, Gene, I know you've broken through and so have I, and we've broken through together time to time. But that's one of the reasons I started Jane Unchained because I would go to all these events and they'd say, oh yeah, the media was going to come, but there was a breaking news story. We all know that that's a crock. And uh, so they're bought, they're, 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 they're beholden to their advertisers. Let's just yeah, be and, honest and, about it. Yeah. And they, and they generally want to tell people what they want to hear. <laughs> so that people keep coming back and keep watching without really thinking. And unfortunately, our media has not really been very good about urging people to think critically and to get uncomfortable. And so right now with the pandemic and with what we're seeing in terms of racism in this country, I think we are starting to be uncomfortable, which is good because it creates an opportunity for change. But, you know, by and large, you know, as Jane was saying, I totally agree that the media, you know, adheres to certain mainstream values and and they also have economic incentives to continue telling people what they want to hear and not encouraging people to think critically. But, But hopefully that can start changing now in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah, well, there is not going to be any business if the world is too hot to support human life. And this is why it's such short-sighted thinking. Uh, But, Gene, what about this possibility that in the fall, with um, the election coming up with people uh, like Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren now saying factory farming has to go, that we could see a dramatic shift? I would really love to see a dramatic shift in terms of government programs and what they incentivize and support, because right now they're supporting animal agriculture. And 
you know, there is the bill, the Farm System Reform Act, I think it's what it's called, that, you know, Cory Booker introduced, and I think Elizabeth Warren is a co-sponsor of now, that would downsize agricultural operations, so it would prohibit factory farms at some point in the future. So that, I think, is a very good thing. Uh, but, you know, politics takes time, and legislative change often takes time, and oftentimes it follows economic changes. So I think we need to vote with our dollars, and we also need to vote in November. It's important. Uh, you know, democracy is a participatory sport. It's critically important to show up, to voice our concerns. And as a you know, nonprofit organization, we, we're nonpartisan. But I can say that, you know, it's important in, in a democracy like this for people who care about various issues to voice their concerns and, and also to be vocal you know, to share things on social media, to educate other people about issues that are of concern to you? Uh, I think that you, I have to have hope. And it is a seesaw. I'm sure you've experienced it too. Like one day I'll look at um, the news and I'll see hope. And then other days I'll look at the news and go, oh, uh, you know, when uh, Donald Trump declared the slaughterhouses as critical infrastructure under the Defense Protection Act that essentially rob workers of um, legal uh, power and uh, yep. remove liability from the slaughterhouse owners. And then the New York Times just reported, meanwhile, while they're talking about we got to feed America, they're exporting the meat overseas. So yep. it's shown to be a complete lie. It was just all about profit. And then, you know, two of the three biggest meat producers aren't even American companies. One's owned by China, one's owned by Brazil, Brazilian owned. So uh, that that was like a, a punch to the stomach because up until that moment, you know, you see, well, these slaughterhouses are shutting down. But, but the law of unintended consequences, right? Your thoughts? Well, also these slaughterhouses that have shut down and all the animals who have been killed not even through the slaughterhouse to be consumed, but just killed and disposed of, the industry is going to get money for that too, which is just so wrong. They should not get these bailouts. They should not be incentivized to continue doing such harmful things. And um, it is discouraging to see just how powerful and entrenched this industry is. But, you know, there is some shift. You know, JBS, for example, recently talked about and I think announced that they're doing a plant-based meat. So yeah. these huge meat companies are recognizing that there are opportunities in plant-based proteins. So uh, I think that it's clear that we do not have the resources on this planet to feed everybody in the world meat the way we eat it in the U.S. And I think these businesses recognize that they're just not going to be able to sustain that and the earth will not be able to sustain that. So they're shifting, which is good. But you still also have structures where you ultimately, I think, need to get to a point where businesses create mutually beneficial relationships with their workers and with the earth and with consumers instead of uh, extractive and exploitive relationships where animals and people are abused in the production side, where consumers are misled the way it's currently happening and yeah. resources are being used to, you know, line people's pockets, you know, line the pockets of the big companies and the, the executives there instead of supporting the workers and the farmers. The yeah. people are on the on the totem pole. The people That's making the money live live in Manhattan. They're point one percenters. They're not. It's crazy. No farmers. Uh, we got another caller, Rebecca. Your question or thought, Rebecca? Okay, thank you. I have two questions. One, does it 
make sense for us to continue to protest in front of these slaughterhouses that are all around my town? Uh, and two, do you think there's some way we can get schools to turn their uh, FFAs into uh, sanctuaries? Is there some way we can connect those two? Thank you so much. Thanks, Rebecca. I love those, I love those ideas. I think we need to continue being vocal, raising awareness about the problems with slaughterhouses and killing animals, of course. And I think schools are very important. And with Farm Sanctuary, we go into the schools, we have a humane education program. And I think there's enormous opportunity for schools to have gardens, to actually grow food and to empower people to learn about growing food. And um, in some cases, you know, if they have the proper facilities, uh, there might even be sanctuary opportunities around schools. But you want to be very careful about that because, you know, when you bring animals in, then you have a responsibility to provide for them for years and provide quality care. So that's a little bit tricky in some cases. But, you know, I think also you have these um, petting zoos that are oftentimes city-run. Now, I think those are places where we can start pushing to create a new type of relationship where the animals are allowed to live out their lives and to be seen as friends. Instead, so Besides schools, I think there are other structures and mechanisms in place where we can push for a, a, a mentality where the animals are seen in a more respectful, dignified way instead of as just props for a, uh, you know, for a, a business. Yeah, and we've got so many people watching on Facebook. Philippa Kingsley is watching from London. And, you know, it is a global issue with the slaughterhouses being hotbeds of coronavirus. It's not just here in the United States. It's also in Canada. It's also in Germany. It's all over the place because the way they're designed. And I think the New York Times did a whole look at this, you know, actually showing people that, uh, hey, there's something called a killing floor you know, that people don't like to think about. Um, so I do feel it's putting, even if the Rachel Maddows of the world won't talk about animal suffering, and I just went to the lengths of writing her an email and congratulating her on talking about what she calls the meat packing plants, like they're packing for a trip and putting some steak in the suitcase. They don't even like to say the word slaughterhouse because it's too real. But I congratulated her and I said, you know, it takes a lot of guts to go up against a big industry because I'm sure that the slaughterhouse industry is not thrilled about nightly coverage of the pandemic in slaughterhouses. But I said, you know, the first person on a mainstream media channel who brings in the suffering of the animals, and I even use the analogy of or the uh, reference to Walter Cronkite after years of you know, reporting, a quote unquote, objectively, neutrally on the Vietnam War, finally said something, a few well-chosen words, and it changed America's attitude toward the Vietnam War. And that was it. The, the quagmire was revealed to be what yes. it is. And so we need somebody like that to make the connection that, you know, uh, a company that's capable of killing 10,000 baby pigs a day in one slaughterhouse is capable of killing people too. It's not a big leap. We know that sociopaths and uh, psychotics start, serial killers start with killing animals. Well, it's on a corporate level too. If you can kill 10,000 baby pigs a day, you can kill people. Yeah, it's, it's all about a lack of empathy, a lack of care for somebody else, and then ultimately a system that exploits and profits from, you know, whether it's, you know, animals or people. And, you know, as you say, I you know, this, this is going to take time. And I think we need to just keep 
beating the drum, reaching out to folks like Rachel Maddow and others, and ultimately, I think, finding common ground and being grateful for any positive step that somebody might, you know, take, and then encouraging there to be more positive steps. Uh, but it's, it's, this is going to be a, a process, but, you know, in the midst of the coronavirus and in the, in the midst of the disruptions that we are now seeing, uh, I think we need to quickly try to show solutions because I think that's a big part of what, you know, how we're going to be able to go forward with a new structural system is by showing solutions, supporting solutions. And oftentimes this means local, you know, vegan businesses. Absolutely. It's super important to make sure that as this huge messy shift occurs and people hopefully transition to a plant-based lifestyle for their own health too. I mean, let's not forget that the people who are suffering the worst effects of COVID-19 are people with underlying health conditions like heart disease and cancer and obesity and diabetes, all of which are reversible or preventable with a plant-based diet. And exactly. so, you know, that's another issue. So listen, we're wrapping up. We only got about a minute. I am so, you know, you're my hero, Gene. I've seen the incredible work you've done and how you've seamlessly and gracefully expanded Farm Sanctuary and just the books you've written and the tours and, um, you know, just you're, you're never ending. You're constantly just growing the movement. You are the conscience of the food movement. And I'm just so honored. I know you're a very busy person that you took an hour of your day to talk to me because I am just a fan and you are my hero. I I always love seeing you, Jane. You're my hero too. And, you know, we're in this together. We're each doing our part. We're trying to nudge this thing forward. and, And you've been at this for decades. So I'm very grateful for all you do as well. And we'll just keep nudging, right? We'll just keep pushing. Well, just keep nudging. And thank you, everybody, for watching. Support Farm Sanctuary, farmsanctuary.org. Go there. Be a part. We got to do this together, people. Talk to you next time. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.